your attention for a few uh, thoughts and considerations on uh, an aspect of Buddhist practice. In fact, um, I was hoping to speak about two specific aspects, all uh, grouped under this uh, topic of the wilderness of the heart, which, as I told one of the groups today, we... um, in fact, is a, a, the literal translation of a uh, teaching of the Buddha in the middle-length sayings, um, a teaching which has only marginally something to do with what I am uh, talking about. <laughs> but I, I do think that there, are, there may be more than one wilderness of the heart. The teaching the title comes from is referring particularly to the challenges of young practitioners on the path. Uh, and uh, there is a, a sequence of f- fetters of the heart that are considered its wildernesses. Uh, one of them is the uncertainty, the doubt, and the lack of confidence in a teacher. Uh, the next is the uncertainty and lack of confidence in uh, the Buddha, in uh, the teaching, in the community, the Sangha, uh, finally in the actual exercise. Doubt, uncertainty, lack of confidence in these four things are considered wildernesses of the heart. And the fifth one, uh, also a particularly Uh, effective wilderness is that the practitioner harbors ill will and is disgruntled about other practitioners. People, in other words, with whom he is together. The teaching in in itself speaks of monks and addresses young monks. So the setting is a communal one. But as with most of Buddhist teaching, it's very easily translated in non-monastic settings because um, allow somebody who has lived in monastic settings for the, bet- the better part of his adult life, um, they are not so really different than may at first be apparent yeah, to the rest of our lives. Um, monasteries are populated by human beings and where human beings are, the wildernesses of the human heart are uh, prone to manifest themselves in one way or the other. So, as the Buddha has taught 45 years of his life, and much of the time he has had an audience that was mixed, and the texts we have seem to record almost unanimously when the audience is mixed that the Buddha speaks to the monks. It's important to know that. Sometimes, even if he speaks specifically to nuns, he still seems to be speaking to the monks. He addresses monks. So, um, it would be premature to say if the word monks appear in a Buddhist discourse, this does not mean that the rest of us is not, are not meant. Yeah. On, on the contrary, I would desist to speculate why this is the case, uh, whether this is the... Um, editorial work of generation of monks whom we owe the transmission of these texts or whether this is just an uh, annoying habit of the Buddha or whether this was a um, um, 
convention of his time and culture. Who knows? What we do know is that this teacher has spent 45 years of his life teaching many, many human beings, um, and a good part of his teachings was given to non-monks and non-nuns. Sometimes even children, poor people, rich people, educated ones, not educated ones. Um, This is very obvious if we look at these texts a bit more clearly and look at them more uh, broadly. It's also obvious that he has not left a finished and polished system. What he has left is a quite jumbled collection of discourses which are all profoundly situational. The Buddha didn't teach a system or a method, but he met people and he responded to queries of people. He responded to situations. This is brilliant if you have been there because you get an attuned response of a totally enlightened being to your particular query. It's a bit more difficult if one hasn't been there then we are handed down a collection of texts, quite a voluminous collection of texts, um, that are not necessarily connected one with the other. So we have to find the connections ourselves. Because side by side, in the transmission of these texts, we may have a teachings which are very specific for this person, very specific about that topic. And then the next discourse, just following after, Uh, maybe about something totally different. The sequel to the first discourse may be 200 pages further down the book. And so it has always been an attempt of the Buddhist tradition following after the Buddha uh, to systematize his teachings. Many attempts have been made, some more, some less successful. And um, that goes down right into our days we can have uh, anthologies collections snippets you know the kind of um, the best pickings inspired readings of the buddha we're kind of skipping all those challenging radical bits politically incorrect you know leave them out and just kind of go to the next inspiring um, peak experience I understand the need for this, and I'm also conscious that we lose something about this. There is a great power in that uh, transmission of his teachings. There's a great power in the textual remnants of his teaching. And obviously we have his example. We have also living oral traditions in many countries, um, and many, many teachers still around, still uh, handing down their understanding of the Buddha's teaching, uh, giving us the benefit of their realization. So, for tonight, I would like to leave the middle length thing, number 16, with the topic of the wilderness of the heart, and I would like to tell you something about uh, what helps in the wilderness of the heart, uh, according to my understanding. The reception of Buddhist teaching in the West is still fairly new. We have increasingly better translations. We have increasingly more knowledge about the Indian context of the Buddhist time. 
we have increasingly more uh, a perspective on where the big Buddhist traditions converge, where despite different sets of robes and maybe different rituals and different imagery, where when we reach a little more deep into each of these traditions, we find a common strand of his teaching. It is obvious to me that we pick up on things of the Buddhist teaching which have a lot to do with our situation. If we meet something new, um, it is natural that that meeting has something to do where we come from, not just something to do with what it actually is that we're meeting. We meet things always from a specific vantage point. So I think Western tradition has picked up very clearly on the wisdom aspect of Buddhist teaching, is quite fascinated by the power that comes from a wisdom tradition which is based on contemplative practice. And that wisdom aspect is something that has fascinated Western people since they have come in touch with Buddhism. Uh, say, right up from Schopenhauer onwards to, to our days here. Um, we have also picked up on the contemplative aspect of the Buddhist teaching, maybe because Christian tradition has lost, or seems to have lost to a large extent, its own contemplative heritage, and we have found this part to be wanting in our uh, backgrounds and so we have eagerly picked up the practice of meditation contemplative introspective exercises and the whole uh, science of mind that goes with this that's definitely what has attracted me 30 years ago to buddhism and has made me keen on uh, engaging with this teaching and with this practices more profoundly there are other aspects we haven't quite so eagerly taken up uh, if I look at the Buddhist teaching, you know, teachings on generosity we haven't quite so eagerly taken up, like the traditions who have um, you know, built and maintained monasteries for two and a half millennia. Um, teachings on morality we have also not quite taken up so enthusiastically, like the wisdom teachings. Teachings on causality, you know, that there is things like uh, cause and uh, con- consequence in our actions that by the quality of our intention uh, is something going over to the quality of our actions and these actions have results and consequences of what Buddhist teaching calls fruition, vipaka. This is also a teaching we have somewhat reluctantly uh, taken on board. Another aspect, I think, and that's what I'm aiming at tonight, is the teaching of what Buddhist tradition calls the Brahma Viharas. These are four uh, qualities of mind that are coming at us from different angles in the Buddhist teaching. Brahma is a god, is one of the Vedic gods, and Buddhists teachers and uh, the Buddha himself have uh, taken on board some of the uh, Vedic deities, have respectfully parked them sort of in a side altar, have subjected them to impermanence, 
and have said they're important, they're very nice there, let's keep them there and let's go back to our practice. So Brahma is a luminous creature which uh, does reside in the uh, realm where we have no longer uh, coarse material experience. It is a very expansive creature, it is a benevolent creature and he leads a very radiant life with his retinue. Vihara means uh, that's where we dwell, a dwelling. Yeah. The state of Bihar in India, that's where the Buddha spent most of his life, uh, has its name from that word. Yeah. So Brahma Vihara means the dwelling of a god or the, the, the mode of being of a Brahma. And the Brahma Viharas are also called um, immeasurable states. There are four immeasurable qualities. They are love, or loving kindness, compassion, um, their joy, or sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These four qualities of mind, they operate on different levels. Uh, it is important to understand that you, we cannot fit these four qualities into our Western models of the psyche properly. They're not strictly emotions. They are not um, states in a technical sense. They don't really fit into an, a, a developmentally psychological model. Um, they're not really things either. Let me try to take them a little bit apart. Uh, on one level, these for Brahma Viharas, these immeasurable qualities or expansive qualities are the way a completely freed human being manifests in the world. It manifests, if somebody is completely free, uh, has done away with delusion, with greed and hatred, such a being manifests uh, genuine and impartial loving kindness. Uh, such a being manifests uh, total compassion. It manifests a tremendous capacity for joy. And it manifests profound equanimity. This is the natural expression of a human heart completely freed of all fetters, of all, um, all the darkening, all the troubling influences that uh, can um, take uh, our chitta, our mind, hostage. So if you meet human beings who claim to be completely enlightened, this is the way they're supposed to be looking. Yeah. Loving, compassionate, joyful, and profoundly equanimous. Yeah. Not indifferent, equanimous. There's a difference there. I hope to say more about this in a moment. So, on a, in Buddhist psychology... These four qualities are at the root of, these are the root nature of our mind. We don't need to um, put them into practice, we don't need to exercise them, we don't need to um, build them up. They are inalienable qualities of the human mind. This is very crucial to understand. Buddhists are sometimes accused of being pessimistic because they're so obsessed with suffering. And 
Um, and indeed, they are a bit obsessed with suffering. You know, but that makes a lot more sense if we understand the background for uh, this uh, apparent obsession. Um, the background is that we're completely capable of happiness and freedom. And the background is that the Buddha takes it as granted that these four capacities of loving, of uh, being compassionate, of being able to experience profound joy and profound equanimity are the base nature of a mind. They are hardwired into it, if you allow me to say so. Yeah. Now, in their in their quality of, of being at the basis of a mind, they're not necessarily manifest. They can be covered over, over, they can be forgotten, they can be troubled. Um, while they cannot be really lost, it's not necessarily so that they're kind of fully uh, obvious. Yeah? They may be dormant. There's parts of our nature that lie dormant. But it is crucial to know, particularly for the insistence of the Buddha that he was interested in the dynamic of suffering and the uh, cessation of suffering, that at the base of our mind he sees that we have a fundamental capacity to love, to see and experience other people's pain and to be motivated to act upon that pain in compassionate ways, uh, that we have the capacity to be totally resonant with the joy of others or to be totally joyous ourselves and to remain in relationship while stay equanimous. You know, this is what he thought human beings are intrinsically capable. They are part of nature. That is important. Now try to find it anywhere in the West. Try to find it anywhere in any of the sciences in the West. There is no such thing as a unifying field theory for happiness in psychology or so. You will have probably noticed that I'm interested in psychological concepts because I find them um, indispensable. Uh, at the same time, I'm also quite conscious there are things of, Buddhist, of the Buddhist teaching that we cannot locate, really, in psychological Western terms. Our refugees, for example, they just don't fit in anywhere in a developmental model. Nor do these Brahma-viharas, nor do these four uh, qualities uh, of the fundamental nature of mind. It is important to understand the most profound level of these teachings is that we can never lose these, even if we live a totally deluded, totally greedy and totally uh, angry life, we will not lose these qualities. So these are universal qualities on that level, and as such, they are gifts. They don't need to be practiced, they don't need to be rescued or they don't need to be made up in our meditation or brought into they are not things of the nature that we need to develop on the on the first level these brahma viharas are complete and profound givens yeah. and they need to be recalled as that that's the only thing we need to do with them we need to uh, recall the fact that we have such qualities in at the bottom of our hearts. The wilderness comes above. Yeah. Now on a second level, 
these uh, four Brahma Viharas become virtues. A virtue is something you can practice. A virtue, uh, first and foremost, is something you can recognize as a virtue. This is something you can recognize in other people, you can admire it, you can recognize it in yourself, you can acknowledge it. That's the first thing to do to make a virtue grow, is to recognize it and to acknowledge it. So we, we can acknowledge in other beings and in ourselves that we are capable of love, that we are capable of compassion, that we are capable of, of profound joy, a joy with others, and that we are capable of being equanimous, having a stillness. Let me say something about the meaning of these words. The word metta or maitri comes from love, simple. There are many words for love in Pali language. Uh, metta is um, a love that is, is non-sticky. It's a love that is um, it's profoundly warm. It's not some kind of abstract type of platonic love. It's not a love of thought. You know. It is a quite... Genuine, uh, welcoming, warm, and directed uh, quality of heart. It's what we all like. It's what makes us grow. It's this quality of heart in which we often feel our own size for the first time. When we feel that coming, when we feel ourselves bathed in that, it is often that we sense our own potentials most clearly. It is often only through experiencing this that we can actually feel what we carry in ourselves. It's a very powerful emotion on this level. It is closely related, still strictly not an emotion, but it is probably closely related to what we would call in a very sort of generous psychological way an emotion. It is a state of our heart the word karuna has an older companion in the in some of parts of the buddhist text the buddha speaks of another quality he calls anukampa which means trembling trembling along kampati means to tremble and anu means going along with something so we we tremble with some other people we allow somebody's pain to touch us in a way that we tremble as well yeah that's a very very clear, very, very immediate uh, image for that quality. So the Buddha trembles for the well-being of other beings. Sometimes it is said the Buddha sits there and he surveys the world and his heart trembles with uh, compassionate care for other human beings. And it is that trembling that then motivates him to go seek somebody out, go teach somebody, appear in front of somebody, help somebody. So often, uh, that is a very powerful, active quality. Um, Tibetan iconography has understood that very clearly. You know, Avalokiteshvara is the bodhisattva of compassion, has uh, the mala beads and the lotus, but he's also got uh, you know, a bow and arrow and a little hatchet and a few other things. He's quite an active fellow. You know, he's quite capable of compassionate activity. He's not just there. Uh, feeling terribly concerned and not doing anything. That's not trembling along, compassion in the Buddhist sense. 
It is the capacity to experience pain that makes us most susceptible to the pain of other beings. And it is this capacity that engenders our wish to uh, ameliorate their situation, to uh, soften their pain, to take it away, or at least to offer comfort. The third quality is interesting. It's less straightforward. Mudita, the word comes from to be joyous, modati, pamodati, um, and it means that we can resonate with the things that are good, that are successful, that are joyous in other people's lives. Notice, to feel the pain of somebody else, we don't need to know their history. We don't need to know their names. We don't need to share their uh, skin color or their religion. We can share the pain of people who are completely strange to us. If we, by circumstances, come to experience some of their suffering, this can touch us quite profoundly, quite deeply. With joy, it seems not so easy. The people whose joy can touch us very deeply are often people who are closer to us. It seems that we have more difficulty uh, in the same uh, profound and uh, immediate way as we are capable of resonating with other people's pain to relate to the joy in other beings. Now, Buddhist tradition insists that this is not necessarily so, that this can be actually cultivated. And it is on the second level where these Brahma-viharas are virtues. We like to develop our capacity to rejoice in other people's presence, to rejoice in their successes, to rejoice in their well-being. The last of these qualities, Upeka, has, or, or Upeksha, has its name also from a verb that is the verb looking. Yeah? Upaikshati means looking across something. Implicit in this uh, is the quality of impartiality. And there is something that has to do with measure. It has to do with perspective. And it is uh, insinuating a perspective of uh, an overview, basically. So what do we do with virtues? What do we do with these Brahma-viharas on the second level? I said admiration and recognizing and acknowledging is the first step to develop a virtue, to make it stronger. Because on this second level, we are called upon not just to acknowledge that we have a, a fundamental nature, but on this second level, we are called to affirm these qualities. We are asked to make much of them. We are asked to strengthen them. We are asked to uh, seek out opportunities where we can live these qualities, where we can enact them in our uh, relationships. Consider the possibility that people have virtues that you do not have, skills that you do not have. Often enough, our first response to that situation is not um, admiration, it's envy. Consider for a moment what the difference is between envy and admiration. 
If I envy somebody for something I value or I see as a quality, um, I stop myself from having joy with this, peop- with this person. And also, I'm making a statement about myself. I look at his or her quality, his or her virtue, and instead of feeling joy and admiration with that virtue, which is manifest over there, uh, I make a statement about a deficit over here. Yeah? I say, this human being over there has something I don't have. It's a good thing, but the really bad thing about it is I don't have it. Yeah? It's not, it's good, it's a good thing, and it's in in itself a good thing. So it just happens to be over there and maybe I can start to resemble it if I admire it long enough or I find out how he or she got it and we can get there as well. No. If I am envious, I say, oh, too bad. Too bad the good thing is over there instead of here. And I make a statement about my person. Instead of making a statement about a gift or a virtue this person has, I make a statement about this person. In, instead of seeing the quality in this person, I see the deficit in this person. I end up, to use a Buddhist term, with a slightly uh, crystallized self-view here. I have solidified my self-view, which I have defined in deficitary terms. I feel bad about this person, and I feel envious about that person. You know? That's what envy does. It makes me unhappy. It stops me from resembling the quality I uh, would like, I could possibly admire in the other person. And at the end of the day, I can't really relate to the goodness in the other person. All I'm is, is preoccupied with the apparent deficit in this person here. If I admire something in somebody else, um, there is definitely joy. And that joy has uh, lifts up my heart. Uh, admiration is the first step to emulation. Yeah? Before, I, before I can emulate something, I need to admire that quality. In fact, it also works the other way around. As soon as I start to admire this quality, I start to resemble it a little bit. Yeah? Because there's a part in me that only recognizes what is admirable in others if it already has a little bit of this in itself here. Yeah? So if I admire, I can grow in that direction, and it elevates my heart. You know? So I win doubly. Yeah? And the other way, if I'm envious, or if I allow to indulge in that, um, I lose doubly. <laughs> yeah. The Buddha suggests that we consciously affirm our wish to cultivate these states of mind, that these qualities of a mind are something we should uh, take up, we should make much of, we should practice. This is not a meditational exercise. This is an exercise outside of formal meditation practice. The power of holding people in loving kindness and in compassion and rejoicing with them and relating to them uh, in equanimity is is tremendous. Yeah. Crucial here is that these four qualities, all of them, are relational aspects. 
even equanimity is still a relational aspect. This is the practice for the human realm. The uh, tradition, Buddhist tradition, Pali tradition, the commentarial tradition has for reasons I am not quite sure why um, understood the teaching of the Brahma Viharas to be largely in a third segment and that third segment is these four qualities as meditation objects, as meditative practices. Particularly the Visuddhi Magga has understood these um, teachings of the Buddha to be uh, meditative exercises. While they definitely are meditative exercises as well, somehow the two first aspects have kind of been swept under the carpet a bit. So it is crucial to be clear that these are not just meditative exercises, although in meditation we can obviously practice these things as we have just done. A very simple exercise is we connect the wish that uh, beings are happy. We connect the wish that beings are free from suffering. We connect the wish to beings that we rejoice with beings in their successes. Uh, and as a fourth, we connect the uh, reflection on the workings of uh, action and consequence, intention and fruition of intention. We connect these wishes with uh, activity like breathing and we affirm these wishes in our actions during meditation. By affirming such a wish, we plant a seed. Very simple wish is what plants the seed of these qualities to grow in our hearts. Um, This is not just superstition or a kind of a ritual. Do not underestimate the power of a, a wish that we keep affirming. If that becomes part of your daily practice, that you wish yourself well, and that you wish other people well, uh, you will be surprised how powerful of an effect that has on the mind. The second level of these Brahma-Vihara teachings is that which should inform our relationship. That's where we have the most power. We are all, as I said yesterday, and as is generally known, quite uh, interested in relationship, we need it, we dread it, um, we uh, feel in relationship uh, sometimes echoes of our own helplessness, we feel tremendous longings, we fear um, hurt, and we may fear all kinds of things, responsibility, rejection, uh, all kinds of things are waking up when we start entering into relationships with human beings. This is nothing new. And it is crucial that we enter into relationship from an understanding of these four major qualities. Now, they may sound lofty, you know, as a sort of universal state of mind, manifestation of a completely enlightened being and so forth. They sound pretty lofty on that level. But they're not all that lofty. You know, their, their manifestation is, is not just lofty. Consider 
just how you enter into relationship to yourself. Because these things do not just apply for other people, <laughs> they apply for ourselves as well. Uh, as I said last night, we are always in relationship to our experience. We are always in relationship to something of us. And that relationship is deeply uh, suffused by our attitude. Now, if that attitude is one of uh, demand, hostility, and vindictiveness, then this comes out rather different when you do meditation practice than when you're uh, loving and gentle and compassionate. It seems that our culture, uh, you have to decide how much this is accurate for yourself, um, it seems that our culture seems not very good at making us uh, self-loving beings. Asian teachers are, uh, have been on more than one occasion been quite shocked to hear, at, uh, to hear of our willingness to hate ourselves, to be judgmental of ourselves, uh, or to just um, maintain relationships to ourselves of a sort of simmering dislike, um, mildly grumbling uh, hostility. That is quite stunning to both Tibetan teachers or Thai teachers. They, they're not familiar with that in themselves. Uh, I remember asking a very, very venerable and senior uh, Thai monk about guilt, which up to that point I held to be just a function of mind, like forgetting and remembering. You know. And um, I was a novice, And there was a very good translator, so my question was translated. And he said, well, minor agitation of the mind, Udacha Kukucha. And somehow I said, well, actually that's not what I mean. I know that, but that's not what I mean. And I asked the translator again, as an Englishman, who knew something about guilt, and he explained. And I just noticed this sort of, you know, my statement was that short, and his statement to the Thai monk was really long. Yeah, so <clears throat> um, it just turned out that this monk did not relate to my experience, and it, it dawned on me after a moment um, that what I had thought to be a normal, natural, fundamental function of mind, which I called guilt, uh, was not such. Yeah that this human being coming from a different culture and from a different uh, conditioning did not know what I call guilt or what I seem to be uh, experiencing so much of. And it, uh, afterwards I began to understand that this may not be as normal and as natural as I just took it for granted, as I assumed it was you know, everywhere in the world. There may be a few more of those. Some of the way we relate to ourselves is deeply painful. And when you breathe in and you breathe out, you can infuse your awareness with a particular quality of mind. Now, if that quality is loving kindness, then you will have a very different result than if you have... uh, infuse your awareness of the breath and of its sensation with um, reproachful and sullen uh, demands or so. You will have a very different result. Even though you apparently do the same exercise, 
you get a very different effect. In the first place, you obviously connect with the breath and also the space will change. It'll go more open, it'll go more soft, it's more likely to relax, you, it feels more welcome. Uh, what you inhabit is a world in which things are okay as they are. Yeah? In the second way, you're more likely to experience something that basically shouldn't be there. Yeah? Yeah, if you know that feeling, if you, if you feel that feeling coming up, things are there basically, but they shouldn't be there. If all things were right here, this shouldn't happen. Yeah? I shouldn't lose my mind, I shouldn't dream, I shouldn't fall asleep, I shouldn't feel bad, I shouldn't have stiff muscles. That is not loving kindness. If we do many hours of meditation, just a little bit of change in our climate can make a lot of difference in our relationship to ourselves. And I'm not telling you anything new if I say that what happens in our relationship to ourselves is very likely to happen in our relationship to others. If I'm impatient with myself, I'm very likely to be impatient with other people as well. If I hate myself a lot, then I am very likely to have two things going with other people. First, I'm quite willing to hate them as well. And... um, Second, I, I need them to love me because, you know, if I can't love me, it's, also, it's all the more important that somebody else loves me. So I will have some consequences of my hatred for myself in quite profound ways. So what I like you to reflect on is the quality of relationship that you infuse your awareness with. That awareness in Pali uh, called sati is very much elevated here in the West. Yeah? The word mindfulness has become a buzzword. Um, it's, it's handed out in stress reductions. Cognitive behavioral therapists have, have found out about it. Uh, Buddhists branding it around as the panacea for everything from you know, headache to uh, major delusions of the mind. Um, it's a good stuff. It's a good thing. Very clear. I'm not against it. Don't understand me wrong. I'm all for it. But it takes more than that, to be honest. The Buddha was quite clear that mindfulness on its own has to be combined with all kinds of things. Effort, Brahma-viharas, values, uh, a quality he calls sampajanya, which means it connects uh, clear comprehension to uh, other things, efficiency, general values, uh, appropriateness. Yeah? Sati in Buddhist teaching is a very crucial quality. But if you look at how the Buddha uses this word, he uses it always conjunct with other things. If we take this aspect of Buddhist teaching out and make it to be the whole of the Buddhist teaching, we are likely to have a, a few surprises with that. So we need sati, no doubt. We need to have more of it. We need to have a broader focus of it. We need to have a longer continuity of it. And it does magic things. But it needs to be combined with other things. One of the things I'm pleading for is that it needs to be infused with uh, an understanding of the Brahma Viharas and a capacity to 
access these qualities of love, of compassion, of joy, and of equanimity as something we learn. Because we haven't been given really a good head start in our culture for cultivating these, it is all the more important that we pick up on that aspect of the Buddhist teaching. So how can we learn? Well, we can learn that the virtues of, of are something we can actually see. We can see it in others. We can ask ourselves, is this compassionate? Is this loving? Is this joyful? Is this equanimous? We can learn to pick up on the signs when our mind is in that state. One way I can find that out about myself is I, I often don't read my thought or my thought patterns. Uh, I often try to listen to them. I found that the, um, the metaphor of listening is more powerful than the metaphor of seeing. Notice how we say we observe, we contemplate, we, uh, we look at, we look through, we, we, we gain insight. You know, these are all visual metaphors. You know? The visual is very powerfully connected with the wisdom uh, faculty in language. In our language here, uh, also in Pali language already it's there. Strangely enough, the auditive uh, metaphor seems to be less prominent and yet it's quite useful. Yeah. Sometimes it's better to listen to, the, to your thoughts as voices. Yeah. You listen to the sound of your thoughts and you will more easily discern what kind of quality propels these thoughts. What kind of wind it is that blows their sails? Yeah. Imagine these thoughts kind of being propelled by a wind across your, the lake of your mind. From which corner does this, does this wind blow? Is this an anxious wind? Or is this a greedy wind? Or is this an angry wind? Or is it a despondent wind? Yeah? Sometimes we can find out about the corner of a, from which one of these emotions come by listening to the sound that speaks in that thought. So I would suggest try listening to the sound of your thoughts. Try listen to the voice. This is a high-pitched, whining, complaining sound or a grumbling, subterranean, growling sound. Or is this a, you know, angry, fiery? Or is it anxious you know, sort of clam thought. So these sounds often tell us more about what stays or st what is the force moving the thoughts across our mind. And um, consider wishing. Consider taking up simple practices of wishing well, wishing other beings well, wishing yourself well. Sometimes it's easier to wish one billion Chinese over there well, but this bastard here, I'm not going to wish well until he's learning to meditate. Yeah. So. Consider listening to that sound. One translation of Avalokiteshvara is he or who listens to the sounds of the world. Yeah. Notice 
it doesn't believe the sounds of the world. It listens to them, yeah? There's a difference there. The capacity of me, of my heart to listen to the sounds of the world is a very different attitude than me trying to stomp out my annoying thoughts, yeah? chase them down and blank them out. Yeah? As long as it moves, it's bad. It'd be better not there. Yeah? This is not loving kindness. This is something Buddhist psychology calls the desire to get rid of. It's a type of desire which uh, is very powerful. So acknowledging that this heart here has the innate qualities of love, of compassion, of joy and of equanimity. That's what I do with these uh, universal states of mind. Acknowledging that as virtues, these uh, states of the heart are capable of being seen, of being admired, of being affirmed, of being planted as wishes, and of being strengthened. You know, can I allow myself to actually uh, fill out the body, for example, with the state of loving-kindness? You know, can I allow myself to start glowing with that? Can I allow myself to contain the pain I feel another being is in? You know, so much of the time we try to protect ourselves from the pain of others because we don't know how to bear pain. Can I resonate with the joy in other beings? Can I truly rejoice in their being, in their presence, in their successes, without a tinge of envy? Can I hold compassionate relationship? A relationship that doesn't try to fix everything or that doesn't try to heal or uh, that doesn't feel guiltily responsible for everything. But that acknowledges there are things I can do, there are things I cannot do. And hold that still as a relational capacity. These are powerful questions. When do I do that? When do I not do that? As meditational exercises, the Brahmaviharas are powerful introspective practices, something I, with great benefit, can spend time with. By wishing, by connecting that wish with a sensation, by affirming this as a meditation object. There's no secret that it's brilliant for samadhi. Yeah. One of the instructions of in the Anapanasati Sutta, the development of uh, collectedness on the basis of breath, uh, quite overtly suggests a stage that I learn how to gladden the mind, how to make my mind glad, how to elevate it into gladness. As uh, this is not a Brahma-Vihara practice at that stage, it is meant to make the mind more collected, to help the mind unify, to gain a profounder, more profound stillness. It is no secret that people with good meditation are people with, uh, that have loving kindness and the capacity to resonate with others. I would like to say something very short about something that also is profoundly important. We are dependent on human beings that take care of us that take an interest in us, that allow us to 
find out more about ourselves in their presence, in their awareness. That seems so simple and so trivial that it's, one is almost ashamed to say that as a statement. Uh, but we often understand about ourselves only in the presence of other people who are interested in us, who are taking a caring and uh, attuned interest in us. And friendship is a powerful quality on the path of spiritual growth. That friendship is very early uh, enshrined in Buddhist teaching. Community is basically one of noble friendship. Teacher uh, relationships and elder brother, elder sister relationships to us are uh, qualities are expressions of uh, noble friendship. The Buddha states quite unequivocally on uh, several occasions that noble friendship is one of the crucial pac- factors on the path of waking, waking up. In a list of seven qualities that bring about the noble eightfold path, uh, friendship, noble friendship, and uh, wise reflection feature as the, f- the first and the last. The pillars of these seven qualities are the capacity to have friends, to be friends, and the capacity to reflect, yeah, to have, a, to understand what's happening, to have a, um, an inquiring and fathoming sort of curiosity in our condition. What is a friend like? We all probably would like to have many friends. And um, What does the Buddha say about a noble friend? He says a noble friend is somebody who is capable of giving what is hard to give, of doing what is hard to do, of bearing what is hard to bear. It is somebody who uh, uh, confides in us. It is somebody who, when we confide in him or her, uh, he or she keeps our secrets. Yeah. Um, a noble friend does not despise us if we are poor. And a noble friend does not leave us behind if we are in need. This is one thing, one set of qualities, he says. Uh, another set, let me think, is... A noble friend is somebody who inspires love in us. He or she inspires respect. And he or she inspires emulation. Somebody whom we like to resemble. A noble friend is somebody who is capable of listening. Profound listening. Noble friend is somebody who's capable of giving advice. Notice the sequence here. Listening and then advice. Some people are quite happy to give us advice. Um, almost so as, as, as if not having to listen first. Yeah? A noble friend is somebody who is interested and capable of engaging in profound subjects in our lives. In Thai language, you have 
several types of friends. One type of friend is um, somebody to eat with, yeah? Puen <coughs> kin. And then you have somebody who is a friend to die with. This is puen dai. And it is understood that these are not the same sort of people, yeah? that you have many puen kin to eat with, and you probably won't have so many to die with. Finally, a noble friend is somebody who has our best interests at heart, who tries to stir us away from squandering our time, our money, our energies in fruitless pursuits. It is somebody who doesn't pull us into difficult or fruitless or futile pursuits. Now, if you consider where are my good friends... Please also consider to whom are you a good friend? To whom could you be a good friend? Yeah. It is an activity. Understand. It is something, friendship, like Sangha, is something we do. It is an intention to cultivate that. It is an intention to live that. It is not something one either has or hasn't, and unfortunately I haven't, so... You know, bad luck or bad karma. That's not what this teaching suggests. This teaching suggests this is a channel of human experience, a channel of our lives which we can cultivate, we can tune into, and we can relate to human beings as noble friends. We can allow being related to as noble friends. A noble friend doesn't have to be a teacher, it doesn't have to be a mentor. It can be just a friend, but somebody who shares your aspiration, somebody who recognizes your aspiration, somebody who is willing to tune into meeting on the level of that aspiration. And the Buddha is quite clear that somebody who is endowed with noble friends, who is a noble friend to others, is likely to grow is likely to grow in virtue, is likely to grow in wisdom, is likely to grow in connectedness. So I'd like you to consider these things. Friendship, where can you live that? Where can you manifest that? And do not think that you are not worthy or that you don't have anything to share. This is just a plain stupid thought. We all have lots to share. And if we have the courage to actually own up what we have to share, then quite magic things may happen. But we need to muster up the courage and we need to muster up the intention to actually manifest the things we carry as seeds in our hearts. So please consider yourself as a, as a seed, seed bed of immeasurable qualities of love, compassion, of joy, of equanimity. Consider yourself as... Uh, completely equipped for the path of noble friendship. Yeah? I'd like to end here and leave you with this tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.